Okay, we're ready to go. Welcome to the new media show. My name is Todd Cochran, and uh, got a great show lined up for you this morning. Rob Greenlee is at uh, Podcast Mid-Atlantic, so he's not uh, with us. I had also invited another guest who had a last-minute bow out. So I've got with me this morning uh, Daniel J. Lewis from the Audacity to Podcast. Good morning, Daniel. Thank you for uh, for being Rob this morning. You're very welcome. And, and I know I've got questions for you on the stuff that we're going to talk about. And it's it's always fun to hang out with podcasters and talk podcasting industry and news and all of the fun stuff that goes along with it. Yeah. And I think today, you know, you know what I wanted to do, you know, Rob, this is an important week because uh, some very, very big news came out. And uh, I had a man, I probably had 50 emails from folks saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What's your opinion? You know, and so I think we're going to uh, dive in deep and specifically the topic. Uh, there's a couple of topics I want to uh, dive into deep as one is the podcast ad, ad metrics guidelines that have finally come out from the IEB. We've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, this is a document that at least I know my company has been working on since. Oh, man. Uh, October of 14. Uh, so that's about no, maybe November of 14 is when we joined the IEB and we jumped in with, with both feet and uh, talk a little bit about the process we went through to with the 23 companies to get where we're at with this document. And then I want to talk about some really some revelations that were made at the podcast upfront and some, comments that were made that back up a lot of topics we've been talking about on programmatic and um, I'm really I was very very pleased to see a stance that the folks at midroll made uh, we'll talk about uh, their comments specifically um, and then there's uh, um, we got covered in the Wall Street Journal on the on the upfronts and everything and so there's a lot a lot to go over but um, I guess, you know, first thing we should really do is to make sure, Daniel, everyone knows where they can find you. We'll do this up front. So as people bounce off later, where can they find you and your show and what you do? I'm at the audacity to podcast.com. It's a podcast about podcasting and it's for podcasters to help them launch or improve their own podcasts. From a business perspective, I also make products and services for podcasters. Uh, but the Audacity to Podcast, free content, almost 300 episodes now, teaching you in-depth ways to either start or improve a podcast, whether that be for hobby or for something professional. And I was editing your lower third because I checked it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back and do I'll, that. I'll just carry my own little card <laughs> underneath of me. I put your Twitter name in where your regular name is and Angelo's name was still on the bottom. So you can tell I'm being very professional this morning. <laughs> so I, I guess we'll start off with this first topic here and it's about the podcast ad metrics guidelines. And let me just kind of talk about the process we went through and I have to be, I can't tell any company names. Um, I have to be careful on, cause this was a confidential process. Um, that we went through, you know, not necessarily how it went, but uh, I really can't talk about companies that, uh, you know, put up a fight or had, you know, issues or anything like that. I'll just kind of talk about the general dynamics here. 
so I don't get myself in trouble with the uh, with the IB. But um, when we joined the the IEP, we did specifically, and so did Libsyn, and so did PodTrack. So I don't want to. I want to make sure they give credit where credits due because those companies uh, ponied up to the bar um, and paid the membership to get in. And just so you know, um, the membership tiers at the IEP is based upon revenue. Um, you have to state your revenue um, that you make as a company, and then they tier you in. Um, from a from an expense standpoint, and I I think those tiers are public, but the the minimum uh size check you can write as any company is ten grand, so that's your annual membership fee. Um, the majority of the companies pay much much more than that uh to be part of the IEB, but um so ourselves because we got what happened is we got wind. I was told through a third party, hey, um, you need to be involved in this and you need to uh, uh, get busy because if you don't, um, you may end up with a product that uh, isn't what you would ex- you know, want. Um, and let's be very frank, up front in any type of, uh, every company has agendas. I don't care who you are. It's My company has an agenda. Libsyn has a gender, Podrack has an agenda, the companies that involved all had a, agendas. But one thing that both Libsyn, Podtrack, and us at Blueberry have always agreed on is some some guidelines. And it goes back to the ADM days, Association of Downloadable Media, where we came up with the first set of uh, guidelines. And that was 2006, seven, eight, something like that. Uh, question on those guidelines yeah. uh, from ADM. Were those technical guidelines? Like, did they set the foundation for the algorithms? They set the guidelines on, uh, you know, I think how often, you know, what, what the time span was that you were to look at a log file for single IP. It it, it, it did set in some standard, I, I don't know if I'm going to call them a logarithms, but it set some rules in, in place. And and we'd have to have Angela here to explain exactly what it is, but a lot of the stuff that we did at the ADM, we submitted to the IEB as some source material for them to use in the podcast Admetrics guideline. How much of that crossed over? Um, I don't know, but I think some of it did. So some of the work we did in those early days crossed over, but um, it really didn't say one plus one equals two, it, unless, you know, it didn't come up with those types of things, but did give you uh, uh, enough, you know, it gave us enough. What we tried to do is in the very early days, we had true arguments about, not true arguments. Media buyers had some of the same questions they had then as they do today. And uh, so, in, in long story short, the we started working with the committee, and it was... Uh, Mm, vocal and uh, points of views and opinions and um, you know everyone feeling themselves out <clears throat> we walked in being uh, truly uh, I guess legacy company in the podcasting space most of the other folks uh, relatively newcomers um, not necessarily newcomers to media business been in media business a long time um 
the list of companies is is um, on the document, and it may be worth you know just mentioning who they were. It was Ad Gear, Ad Large, AdWiz, Blog Talk Radio, CBS, Local, Cox Media, DG, D, D, Digital Media, ESPN, Google, Libsyn, Midroll, NPR, New York Public Radio, Nielsen Podcast One, Podtrack, Raw Voice, Blueberry, Sismic. Panoply, Triton Digital, Westwood One, White Orbit, and Wondery. And the two chairs were Rocky Thomas from AdWiz and Isla Makovich from Google. So um, this was the group that worked on this document. And um, the first few months was tough. Uh, we were coming in and saying, nope, 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 <laughs> no, that's wrong. No, no. Uh, why is this in here? And it went they had um the technical group and the business group were all together and it got to a point where they said listen <laughs> we need to take the business folks and we need to put them in a room and we need to take the technical people and we need to put them in a room let the technical people i mean technical people work on the guideline <laughs> and the you know so they split us up and and then they had a meeting at uh, at NAB, and I I call this the the day of reckoning really for the committee. We I sent Angelo, and he spent half a day along with all the other representatives laying out their cases on. Yeah, actually looking. I mean, this is where the I didn't even go because um, it was purely a technical discussion. Um, I know Rob Walsh was there, and he just kind of hit out and uh, hung out in the back and let the tech heads do their thing. But we laid out systematically with about six, seven, or ten examples of why some of the things that had been said in the committee was not necessarily completely accurate, laid out our case, uh, just laid it out scientifically, said, here, this is this. You cannot can get you, from here to that. Go ahead. Can you give an example, without naming a, a company, of course, can you give an example of one of those wrong assumptions they had? Uh, okay, um, time upon which you should, um, uh, well, let's see here, let me, how should I do this? Oh, okay, um, one of the wrong assumptions, maybe, uh, was made that every time, um, a, when, you know, progressive download on a podcast is byte served, so it, it's chunked, and it depends on your connection, how big or little the chunks are, they're never the same size. And sometimes even when you actively play, the media file will download pretty quickly and you'll get the whole media file real quick. But it'll ask for pieces of that media file. Where, well, there may have been an assumption by uh, a group that each of those pieces you should count. One, two, three, four, five, six. That was, you know, instead of being a one, it was a six. Um, and we laid out those rules and we laid you know, basically not the rules. We just went and talked about the standard stuff that any IT guy that works in the web space will understand on logs and, uh, result codes and, you know, uh, partial downloads. It just, we went into, you know, and we talked about fraud and a whole bunch of stuff. And I think from the 2015 NAB meeting, um, and Angela got compliments far and wide. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you. Um, um, he really made an impression that day. Um, Rob had even has mentioned it and commented on what Angela had done. And, and I'm not taking anything away from the other, the companies, but 
you know, Banjo lived and breathed this stuff since 2005. And uh, so we got on track from a technical standpoint. And then it was essentially uh, 14 months of, is it a download? Is it a, you know, what do we call this? What's the terminology? Uh, what are the examples? So the document um, went through mm, two final reviews. Um, the initial final review I saw uh, on the executive summary of the document, um, I submitted significant mm, word changes. <laughs> some of them were taken and some of them were not. And what you ended up, what we've ended up with is a document that I feel um, is a great first start in uh, laying out, you know, what exactly is happening today in podcast metrics. Um, what is possible, what isn't, and that, you know, comes with its own impacts. Um, would I, in my basis of reading through, and I've read this thing at least maybe five times because I'm just, um, call me a conspiracy theorist. I'm, I'm always, you are one, Todd. <laughs> I'm looking for, you know, because what this was is, is a collaboration and, Again, I go back to talking about companies having agendas, right? So a twist of a word here, a twist of a word there, if read, and the person goes, hmm, could have a advantage of a, for maybe a company that's in the business space. <laughs> and there's a, maybe a couple of those in here. Um, but the rest of it, I think we've, I think we, it's, well, I guess we'll start talking now about your opinion of the document. It's a little, it's a little dry read, isn't it, to begin with? It is. It's not as technical as I expected it would be. And um, after reading it, I was actually a little bit disappointed, knowing how much time went into this. Yeah. What I, well, what I was expecting from this guideline was an actual guidance or actual algorithms laid out for how to filter the separate logs and uh, requests and such. In other words, something that... Um, if these other companies right. that are involved, and by the way, do take note what companies weren't involved. I won't name them, but take note. Um, but these companies that were involved, I thought that as a result of having this document, we would have something where these companies could say they use IAB certified stats or right. they follow the IAB guidelines. And then we could then, as customers, as podcasters, as advertisers, anyone could then know their stats are going to be about the same as everyone else's stats. But what I felt when reading the document is that it was more of like a, a definition or a kind of like a for your information yep. of the elements used yep. for measuring, but not actually how to use those elements to measure. I, and I understand your maybe frustration with that, but I think if you look at the appendix, section seven um if the companies follow the basic examples of the example formulas for measuring unique media file request if they do just that part in seven in section seven 
Number one, example formula for measuring unique media file requests. Number two, example formula for determining a partial download. Number three, example formula for determining a completed download. If they do just those three items, um, that's going to bring us, I believe, to basic parity. Now, okay, so how, how, what do you mean by that, Todd? Well, um, we've defined uh, one or more multiple server requests for a single file within a 24-hour period is still counted as a unique, as one. A maximum of two, depending on the, if it's a separate user agent that comes in, there's some rules there. So number one, we can't count a, a unique IP um, that has come in for a single file uh, more than once. And some of the companies were using four hours as a period. Some were using three days. Some were using. So 24 hours is, is a nice medium for a. And remember, we put out a blog post at powerpresspodcast.com that really when, a, when an RS feed pops, in other words, when an RS feed updates, in most cases we see a massive surge of uh, podcatchers and that first 24 hours, grab that file. Almost all of the downloads, the automatic downloads, the subscribe downloads happen in the first 24 hours. And then from 48 to 72 hours, the rest of the stuff comes in. And, you know, there's intermix in the first 24 hours to desktop players, OTT, uh, active plays typically come in a little bit later. And by an active play, I mean you're clicking play versus downloading. So, um, so that first 24 hour period is, um, pretty critical um and you know you that that podcatcher comes and grabs it once if, if the podcatcher by chance uh got interrupted and grabs it again it's still a one if uh if it's a let's say it's the podcast ios app that grabbed the file the first 24 hours and then later the same ip comes in and it's a it's a browser grabbing it or a um a different app and technically that's a two um the way the guidelines but not a three um so so i want to bring this into like an english example here. sure let's say you have an iphone a computer and an ipad yeah so if they're all subscribed to the same podcast and they all download the same episode right. within 24 hours within the same 24 hours yep. Instead of it showing up as three downloads, if they're all at home, they're all on the same Wi-Fi network, yep. same IP address, public IP address, yep. it caps out at two. two. So those three downloads won't be counted as three. Right. According to the suggestion that is in the appendix, they would only be counted as two because that's the maximum based on that algorithm. Right. right? Yeah. Now, here's the, the, the kicker to this. We've done studies. Okay, so someone said, how prevalent is that second IP grabbing that unique file? It's a, a, a few percentage points. It's not even like 10%. It's like, it's like five. And again, it, that's rough. We haven't done it in maybe six months, but it, we, every time we look at this, we go back and we look at the unique IPs and we say, okay, how many times do we see that unique IP a second time in 24 hours? And again, it's very, very small numbers. And how many times do we see the third? And it's like less than a percent. So even though we allow two from a unique IP, it doesn't happen very often. Um, so that, it does, but it 
doesn't happen a lot. Um, so that's the, you know, the example for me, at least for measuring a unique, uh, a unique media file request. Number two was an example for me determining a partial download. And the only way this can be done is if the individual, and I think right now, I don't know if anyone else is doing this. I think we're still the only one doing it. Um, looking at the log files and being able to determine, um, did the, did the file actually complete? And we, um, we, we set ours ups in percentages and we have blocks and, but the important thing here is that, um, what we have really determined on a raw log file basis, and I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but we don't, if, if, a, if a media file is um, the first, uh, let's say that 100K of the file is downloaded and stops, um, we don't count that. Um, matter of fact, we have a, we have a, a certain place that we say is our threshold for actually even counting uh, when a media file has started to download we needed to get past a certain threshold before we even say yeah maybe there's a partial but it uh, it had to get beyond this specific uh, goalpost uh, and each company's going to have a little bit different in, in um, setup on that and we didn't really lay that out, I don't think, as a um, requirement. Remember, we had to get 23 companies to agree. <laughs> and getting 23 companies to agree to anything is hard. Um, but I think, too, um, the example format for determining a complete download was important as well. Um, and if each company just does this basic stuff now granted there's there's filtering and we talked there's filtering dis discussions in the in the document it doesn't cover it a lot but you know you still have to filter and in how do you define the filters i'll be honest with you the filters grow every day so you couldn't come up with a list of you know 500 filters you had you know each company has got to be able to filter on their own so even following examples one, two, three in the appendix, you're going to at least have a base number to start from that no one should exceed. What concerns me, though, with these examples is the document specifically uses the word suggestions. It doesn't right. say follow these. It just says suggestions, and they're called examples. So the, um, when we're talking about like that 24-hour period, yeah, that's in the example, but company X may decide, oh, we're going to make it a four-hour period. Or instead. three days. Yeah. And the problem that, you know, here's the thing you have to remember about the IEB. It's a, in the, this is a guidelines document. This isn't, uh, there was no way they could ever, that they, I don't think they'll ever put, in, and this is the same thing with their streaming guidelines, digital um, banner guidelines. They cannot say this is the rules. This, you know, this is the gospel. This is what you have to do. The IEB is not a enforcement agency. They're not a um, certification agency. Um, they're basically bringing the industry together to come up with best, best practices and guidelines. And then it's up to us to say, yes, we meet the IEB guidelines and or in addition to plus, 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 plus. Um, so I think and here's, you know, this is a like what we want. If we want hard rules, 
um, I don't think you'll ever get hard rules, but at least I can tell a media buyer that my company um, meets the standards in the guidelines of the measurement document. And in addition to, we do this, 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 and this. And um, it le- and it, the key we wanted to, you know, here's the, the ultimate thing. We, we were getting suppressed CPMs because of over-reporting. At a base level, this stops. If everyone follows the, follows the guidelines and say, yep, we're, we're, we're meeting the guidelines, if they come out and say that. Um, and again, the only way then they're going to be able to, um, the certification authorities, a company like MRC, which we talked about on the last show, um, that you pay a hundred thousand dollars to, and they make, they go through and they say, oh yeah, you do meet these IB guidelines. And, uh, but they even go deeper than that. They look at your specific a logarithm, say, yep, this is good. This is good. This is good. And then you come up with a document saying, this is exactly how we measure. And the MRC says, yep, this is what they do. That's an MRC certification. That's why it's very expensive, very time consuming. Um, you know, it's like going through an, the ultimate IRS audit. So it may not go as far as everyone wants. And we understand completely. Um, but at the same time, uh, 23 companies, 23 agendas. And overall though, I think that what you, what we have here are some definitions now, um, you know, in some terminology, uh, ad delivered, client confirmed ad play, partial file download, complete file download, unique file requests. Uh, you're going to see, um, even on our system, you're going to start seeing terminology change in our stats that reflect, re, uh, reflect these new definitions um, so that as you're pulling your stats and you can tell a media buyer, okay, I had on uh, March, I had uh, 182,000 unique file requests. I had 210,686 completed file downloads. And if you're using those same terms and PodTrack's using those same terms and Midroll's using the same terms and Podcast One's using the same terms and Panoply's using the same terms, the media buyers aren't like, because that's what they're doing now. They're squinting their eyes like, because everyone's using a different term. How accurate are um, redirect-based stats? Like, um, for comparison here, Libsyn provides stats only to hosting customers. Right. PodTrack doesn't provide hosting, right? Right. They provide only stats mm-hmm. redirects. Blueberry, you can host and get stats. Yep. Or you can get stats only. So yep. like with Blueberry, are the uh, redirect-based stats that you can use with any hosting as accurate as the hosting-based stats? Uh, no, they're not. Um, well, let's let me be careful here. They they are because of the uh, filtering, but there will be, um, for example, I can't tell on a redirect if um, if 500k of the file was delivered. Um, you know, if it was just come in and touch and loaded a little bit of it, I can't tell that. I can only tell yeah. that on a on a raw log file. Can you see um, byte range requests? Do, are those passed through the redirect every time 
they're requested. So if, if uh, someone requests the first 10% of the file and then the next 10% and then the next 10%, their app is doing that. Does the Blueberry redirect stat track each of those requests or does it only track that first one? Uh, be careful here. Um, that might be an Angelo question. Oh, it's... Uh... We are able to, let's put it this way, we're going to be start offering um, very soon <laughs> uh, partial download data to Blueberry Stats customers. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And, and, you know, when you're, when you're saying something like that, that reminds me, too, that when it comes back to, like, exposing the algorithms, yeah, I think there's respect due to the companies that have invested. Blueberry has invested significantly in refining your algorithm, in building your own set of filters. Libsyn as well, PodTrack as well. Um, so it's it's understandable that after investing hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever you've invested in this, that you can't just put it out there to say, okay, everybody else, follow this. Well, I'll be honest. We laid out um, 11 guidelines. We gave the IEB IP. Um, I told Angelo, finally forget it. I says, we're not going to win this battle unless we um, lay out the, you know, the, the logic on how we do this measurement. And we gave them 11 specific guidelines. Only three of those 11 made it into the appendix. So... What the appendix or what the document has is, again, a first go at a minimum the a minimum standards to level the playing field. If the, at least the first three items are followed, if in true, in fact, the first three items are followed, even with no filtering, <laughs> which we know everyone's, everyone's saying they're filtering, um, we're a lot closer <laughs> than what we were 20 months ago. Um, so you know, is a media buyer going to read this document? No way. Media buyers are not going to read this document. Maybe one person out of a media company will that's really a geeky. But what this thing, what this document's really for is the podcast companies and podcasters to look and say, okay, is my media being measured around these basic guidelines. Um, and if they are, I can probably feel pretty good with my numbers. <laughs> uh, does it, could it go deeper? Oh yeah, we could go a lot deeper. You know, there's not, there's comments about fraud. There's comments about filtering in the document, but we don't tell you how to filter. We don't tell you how to prevent fraud, but some of the fraud stuff can actually be prevented by actually following rules one, two, and three. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah so and, and my concern was it that the document didn't go quite far enough but it also um shows some shortcomings still in the space yeah. the shortcomings are laid out pretty black and white yeah and i can really appreciate the language they used in describing this they were very clear to distinguish complete downloads and the black hole that that is and that there are limitations in apps and the only way to really work around that is have your own app. Uh, they were very clear to define what they call, I think they called it an online listing or you call it an active play where someone is 
presses play and the file starts downloading immediately right. while you're listening. It's progressively downloading. And then they also clearly defined a stream, but then they also said this document is not intended for streaming guidelines. That's a separate document they have. Yeah. So I, I, I think too here, you know, we've, um, um, you know, and there's a story that all of us can tell from about downloads too. And we've talked about it many times on this show and it's a story you have to tell because you can't tell once the file has been downloaded, if someone has actually played, you have to tell that story about trending and iOS and its default functions of stopping downloads three to five episodes. And you have to manually restart the actual, um, you know, the automatic downloading of the show when you haven't listened then um, you know, talk about trending lines and, and look at the long period performance of a show versus the short. I'm still billing on performance of a single episode, but when I'm doing planning and when I'm talking with media buyers, I can say, listen, you know, they're listening because if they wouldn't, these numbers would not, you know, I would lose 50% of the iOS audience would be gone within a month of, you know, of, of this, of them having subscribed to the show. So, uh, that argument can be made and it's um, but you know what it what this document doesn't do is give the um, non-direct response buyers the folks that are like the Geico's and the Ford's and those companies it doesn't give them an instantaneous um, ideas of you know because on television on digital mostly have their feedback uh, that are happening you know, an ad plays on your digital cable box today, there's a signal being sent back that that ad was watched, you know, so they get instantly, they know that the media was, or the advertising was delivered and they can bill on it. Now, that is not going to be the case in podcasting. Yeah. Podcasts are very much like magazines where you can say, yes, we delivered this many subscriptions and sold this many copies. But you don't know whether someone actually reads the magazine. I, I'm subscribed to a magazine about a topic I'm very passionate about, but I never read the magazine. I do get it every quarter, but I never open it and read it. And that the nice thing, though, in podcasting is that there is that trending, and you refer to this often, that if I don't read the magazine, the company doesn't care. They continue delivering the magazines for right. as long as I'm paying. Yeah. But in podcasting, it's different because many podcast apps, if you don't interact with an episode after so many episodes, like it's average is three to five, um, then it pauses the subscription. And mm -hmm. that's what gives you that trending information to see, are your subscriptions going down? That might be because people are subscribing, but not actually listening. Yeah. So, you know, I think one thing, too, that we also have to understand is the history here. And I knew this document was coming. So the document that, or the article that we put up on PowerPress was to, uh, PowerPressPodcast.com was try to give the people a sense of what was happening today, not 10 years ago in the space. Now, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, um, we have to think about the mindset of what got podcasting beginning, got it going in the first place. Anyone that's a podcast subscriber knows the power of being able to take that 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 device, whatever it may be, with them and listen wherever they are, airplane, desert, Antarctica, 
on a trails in Nairobi. It doesn't matter where you are. You can consume this media because you take it with you. And you can't do that with streaming audio. In other words, a, you know, a Pandora. There's places you can't listen to Pandora. It just doesn't work. Um, so we built this space under the mindset of being able, and this is what podcasting's always been about, is it's a it's an on-demand, take-it-with-you medium. So there's been this big um, hate on the download. So as podcasters, we all know that's bullshit because what do we do? We all are taking this media with us. Our subscribers are too. We get stories. I listen to you on the treadmill. I listen to you on that back trail in Nairobi. You get the stories from your audience and where they're listening to your content. Now, Granted, there's a number of folks that are in a metropolitan area. They're not bandwidth denied. They can listen on demand. So we've seen that increase, but still 60%. 60% of the podcast consumption today is um, through apps and devices that technically, if you're subscribed, will download that media file within minutes. So we're just different. This is the way this space grew up. This is what, how we've trained listeners. What do we do on every show? What do you tell them, Daniel, on every show? Subscribe. Subscribe. It's on thousands of episodes a week. Subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Subscribe via the podcast via Android. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We talk. Subscribe comes out of our mouth so damn much the regular audience is sick of it. <laughs> you know, so... This is our medium. This is what we have. This is what you have to live for. Now, <laughs> what comes next? So, the, so what other concerns or thoughts did you have on the document? Uh, it, it, I think it, it is that good first step. It's, it's different from what I was expecting. It does make me question some of that validity of using redirect-based stats oh. instead of host-based stats. Um, but it sounds like Blueberry is working on a solution. Well, for that. I, I, you know, I don't think in your redirect is um, we still get delivery messages and all that stuff. So you know, you're you're going to you don't have to worry about your redirect stats being wrong. And I think if anyone that's looked at Libsyn stats, look at our stats, um, they're, they're always relatively close, uh, and PodTrack as well. Um, and here's what I you know for small shows. Um, it's oftentimes a bigger issue than big shows. And, um, because the, the, the variances may look, um, a little wider, maybe even on smaller shows, they may have, you know, two, 300 or 400 difference, but typically it's, it's, uh, what, you know, what's a thousand downloads among friends. That's, you know, what my kind of my favorite thing to say right now lately is, you know, generally across, uh, you know, multiple, uh, measurement platforms, you're, you're probably plus or minus a thousand. What, what do you see? Have you, you've run some tests, haven't you? Yeah, I see that um, because I do use both Libsyn and Blueberry right. for stats and hosting. And I see that the numbers are very, very close. And there is that slight language difference between the two, yep. which you know I'm expecting now that both companies are going to match the languages because of this IAB guidelines. Yep. So that will be nicer for me. Um, but yeah, it's it's a small difference, really. And I think tr what you end up having here, too, is there's other factors that go in as well. There's the filtering. Mm -hmm. 
So if, you know, if, if the filtering isn't quite as enough on one service or the other, you know, the numbers can vary a lot. Um, so there's, you know, what we're looking at in fraud isn't such a fraud used to be a big deal. Uh, we don't see too much fraud anymore. When it, when it, when we do see fraud, it sticks out like a, oh my God, it's like a beacon. Um, because you know, you have, we're looking at a big swath of data, you know, and everything's running, running, running. All of a sudden you see this albatross with a big spike somewhere and you're like, what is that? And you go look and you're like, oh. And, you, and then you have to adjust for it. But we don't see that very often anymore. People are not trying to game the system. You know, they're not running bots. They're, you know, that was the big thing in the early days. People were running servers that would hit log files. So um, uh, that, has, uh, that has been eliminated largely. But I think, too, what you've got in here is uh, room to grow. And maybe, you know, given some time, uh, with Apple and other companies understanding the what our challenges truly are, um, maybe we'll at some point get some of that that back office data that we've never had access to. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if Apple came? Now, you know, podcasters better be careful what they wish for, but uh, wouldn't it be nice to get that back office data from from Apple saying, yeah, you know, you had. Uh, 8,000 people subscribed and downloaded and 7,200 listened on the last episode. And that's, for podcasters, I think that would be huge. That's huge. something that's wonderful about a platform like Stitcher up until recently. They'll probably still do this, but like with Stitcher, you can see how much of your episode was yeah. listened to. Yeah. And you can learn from that. And, mm -hmm. and I know advertisers want that a lot, to know whether their ads were heard. But for yeah. podcasters, it's really helpful for you to know what's the ideal length, are people tuning out every time you get to a certain point in your audio? Yeah. And, you know, if you look at Daniel, if you look at the, um, if you think about this though, we haven't had problems selling advertising in the space because it's been largely direct, res direct response. And, you know, we had a, a media buyer on the show here six months ago or so, maybe eight months ago. And he said that, you know, we, uh, we adjust a little bit for each client because we know they um, measure a little bit different and, we take into account that and we know that the performance is going to vary across network to network. Uh, at least the consistency and uh, medium of error is different in each network. So they're able to assign, you know, a little adjustment internally. Um, but on direct response, they, they know what to expect because they're running across 10 networks. And if they're, if it's, you know, on a direct response, really what it boils down to, they may pay in CPM, but they back the number and how many new customers did we get? And if they spent a thousand dollars and it, they expected to get 50 new customers from that, well, that was 50 times 20. That's a thousand bucks. It cost me 20 bucks to acquire a customer on uh, Blueberry, but it cost me $28 on uh, Network XXX. Well, what is Network XXX doing? Or what's the medium? If I run across five, a 28 on 20 on the other, uh, 17 on one, they can you know, they know what the performance is and, um, they, and then they adjust CPMs accordingly. And, and here's a cool example of that on my own network, Noodle Mix Network, where I've got a few active podcasts. I have two productivity themed podcasts. One is many times larger than the other. And I negotiated an ad deal with a company recently for a productivity focused product and they appeared on both of those podcasts during the same time, giving similar calls to action. 
the big show did not perform as well as the little show. So that company came back and they said, we're going to continue tracking the big show, but we definitely want to renew on the lower, the smaller show. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's, it's a difference in the audience, a difference in how the host makes that sponsor relevant to the audience. And, and where that audience is and whether they need that sponsor in their place in life. It's always been my contention. This, actually, on a whole, smaller shows perform better than the big shows because the smaller shows have a tighter, well, the, oftentimes the host knows a large portion of his audience. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's. I, I, do you have anything else on this? I think... Uh, no. Again, it's, first step. it's yeah, it's a first step, and it it was a lot of you know, and uh, you know, uh, every company that was involved, uh, uh, you know, one or two hours um, a month on a phone, and then uh, homework and assignments and travel and everything else that went with it, and then you know, people putting their money for it for the contribution. Um, you know, one of the first complaints I had. Um, in a forum on Facebook was, is why is so-and-so, why weren't they involved? And I'm like, you should ask that company why they were not involved. Um, you know, let's look at it. PodTrack, Podcast One, Raw Voice, uh, Midroll, Liz Libson, Panapoli, NPR, uh, Blog Talk, all well-known players in the podcasting space, some that most people don't know who they are. Of course, Wondery's new. Some folks don't know who Wide Orbit is. Some folks don't know who uh, uh, some of these you know some of these groups are, but they all are involved in the podcasting space. So, um, and when some we, and then when someone points fingers and says, "Well, this is just an agenda," okay, you've got little old raw voice Blueberry, and you got Google on the same committee and. We're going mano a mano in discussions and being treated as an equal. I don't think there was, there's no way in um, Todd's agenda was able to filter into this document. Facts did. And we argued about different types of wording and that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, we were less hung up on the terminology the term terminology is terminology i don't you know i don't long as they didn't call it an impression um i was good <laughs> I, you know i really didn't care as long as it, the only thing i said not you know we, we said drew the line on no on impression don't use that word that's that's a digital banner term <laughs> but integrated ads uh you know so different types of you know, terminology now being used, but um, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm curious to see what the Art 19s of the world have to say now um, about some of this because, you know, they, they've been claiming they've got all kinds of secret sauce, yet, uh, you know, as far as I know, they're just doing injection. I want to talk next, Daniel, about um, oh, some of the reactions. Uh, there was an article on radioinc.com, uh, some some uh, reactions. Uh, let's see here. Rob is here. I'll read Rob Greenlee's uh, uh, reaction. He says, uh, Rob Greenlee, head of content, Spreaker, told Radio Inc. 
long-awaited, highly anticipated release of IE Podcast Metric Ad Guidelines is a huge milestone. This last happened. The last time this happened, it was in 2008 with Ad Standards for Measurement Podcasts uh, being established by Association of Downloadable Media. These new guidelines create a new benchmark for measuring podcast downloads that update those eight-year-old guidelines to reflect eight years of learning, adapting, and improving the technologies by the early leaders of podcasting industry. I want to thank all those on the IAB committee for their hard work and dedication over the past two years to make this happen. So that was Rob. Um, Amplify Media founder, CEO Stephen Goldstein, Said that the picture said the document released on Tuesday. Great start. It's early days in the monetization of podcasts. Isn't that funny? 12 years. It's early days. And that has meant a varied viewpoints on the best approaches and practices measuring presenting podcast data. This is a great primer and offers more unity and clarity and attempt to set some standards. Um, I think there was a comment by the folks at thought uh, there was one in here from the podcast movement folks from Dan Franks. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um, Dan Frank said, super exciting to see some of the old guard, I guess that's us, and the new power players collaborating on something like this. There are groups like Libsyn and Blueberry that have been doing measurement for a long time and doing it right for most as long, in my opinion. In the past, there seemed to be some hesitancy by new players to trust or want to welcome the knowledge that they've gained over the past decade. I'm excited to see what they see what looks like a form of them all locking arms to work together for the greater good and really hope it continues in other facets of the business as well. That was a great comment by Dan. A lot of insight there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, first step. Well, I don't know what's going to be the next, Daniel. We'll see. <laughs> but I did kind of dance the jig. <laughs> There's an article that came out on uh, September 7th from Ad Exchanger. I don't know if you saw this or not. Um, the upfront happened this week. And I heard it was long. <laughs> the podcast up front done by the IEB. We did not participate. Um, let me just say, uh, to participate in the podcast up front um, would have required significant uh, capital outlay. <laughs> and uh, we decided to invest that in dev. But um, I'm very proud. And in, in, uh, Rob... M, you know, I'm, if you're listening, uh, you guys did a good job here. Made a good comment. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> but the title of this article is uh, New Measurement Guidelines and Worrying Thoughts on Programmatic. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, someone spoke out of against programmatic. And, of course, programmatic is um, basically automated advertising buying for podcasts. And... Um, um, the folks at Help Stuff Work says, um, programmatic podcast, not so picture perfect. Um, the ad has to be authentic and transparent, said Jason Hotch, the chief content officer at How Stuff Works. Once you are super, once you are super honest with your audience, they move quickly into the content. There is a higher expectation around authenticity. Uh, podcasts aren't yet ready for programmatic buy, buying as there's not enough inventory to justify it, but a handful of podcasts use a data-driven serving mechanism called Dynamic Ad Insertion, which stitches in ads based on listeners' data at the moment of download. But even dynamic ad insertion can be risky. And this is the comment I just absolutely love. This is from Midroll. 
We are typically hearing from advertisers who are the biggest, longest-term folks in the space that they are concerned about insertion, said Midrolls Friedman. The networks that force them to move to insertion are seeing performance worsen. Uh-huh. There was another article, and I thought it came out from IAB. I'm, I'm trying to find it in my history. But it, it approached that from the other perspective to say host read uh, and in the flow of the context, integrated ads are significantly outperforming any kind of dynamic ad insertion or programmatic ad buys. Absolutely, including pre-rolls. Yeah. So this piece is just, you know, I, you know, I, I, be honest with you, as a little, you know, I, I know that Midroll has experimented with some insertion and I think there's a way to do insertion correctly. You know, it, it's no secret. You take the dog, you do a host red ad, you produce it, but then you need to remember the context of how you produced it when you're doing your show <laughs> so that there's a natural transition into that inserted ad that's going to come on board. In other words, you make inserted ads not sound like inserted Absolutely. ads. Absolutely. They need to sound exactly like a host read, but you have, yeah. you know, and you, it takes practice. I tried to do it. I've done it on a couple of my shows. I've said, okay, because I'm in, logically, I'm trying to work this out in my head. How do you do this effectively? And you have to really practice to remember, okay, I'm coming up on my spot. I got to remember how I introduced the spot before. And you're going to be, and of course, you may not only have one ad going. You may have two or three ads. That's the, the thing of insertion. They, they may be flipping between three different um, advertisers. So you got to play you got to go be able to go into all three ads clean. That's easier said than done. Oh, I found the article. It's on IAB.com, not IABtech.com. Oh, okay. And they said, in a survey of nearly 1,000 podcast listeners conducted in partnership with Edison Research, it was found that nearly two-thirds of fans are more willing to consider purchasing products and services they learn about during a podcast 60% also state that given equal price and quality, they prefer to buy products from companies that advertise on their favorite podcasts. Um, it also says uh, listeners prefer sponsorship messages and host mentions of products and services to pre-recorded advertisements during podcasts, emphasizing the advertising opportunity created by the personal relationship between the podcast hosts and their audiences. Aha. Uh -huh. Very interesting. I think I got your lower third fixed. What I I tried. It's still showing up wrong. How come it's not showing up the right ad? Uh, it's very irritating. Oh, there you go. You're good now. Hmm. So, what's your takeaway from that? Well, it. I think it just confirms everything we know, and um, the way that a host can in integrate their personality into an ad, I think makes all the more difference too. There's a, a very popular podcast that I listen to and their host ad read is simply they interrupt the content and say, this episode is brought to you by such and such. Mm -hmm. Visit their website for this. And then they go back to their content. And, and that, I don't care at all about that. But if someone 
makes that ad relevant to the discussion, relevant to me. They inject their personality into the ad. That means a whole lot more to me. And that sticks in my mind. I think so too. So, you know, I keep getting, I got asked just the other day um, from a company, why aren't you doing injection? And they were doing stats with us. And I'm like, we're in a go-to-meeting session. I said, can I bring up your stats? They said, yeah. So I went and brought their stats and we went to their episode trending line. And I'm, <laughs> I showed them, I said, okay, let's, let's look at out months. Let's look at an episode that was created last month that you might want to rebuild and put a new ad in it. And we looked at it and I'm says, is it worth you paying some company this amount of dollars to rebuild a file that's only going to get 25 downloads this month. Hmm. You know, and we, we went through and looked and they, they didn't, they weren't a long tail. And when I, you know, when I kind of finally showed them that they're like, wow, it doesn't make a difference. Does it? No. And that did, did just, ding, you know, it's like the light went on and they understood that they didn't need injection. Um, so, you know, unless the vendor, and we haven't had a vendor complain about leaving, you know, most vendors don't complain. You leave your ad in their content. What do you, oh, you mean? You're going to, it's going to be in there forever. Great. <laughs> to them, it's added value. You know, it's only not added value when it's uh, the Macy's day sale for Thanksgiving. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, Nancy asked in the chat room. I apologize. Nancy, I didn't see it earlier. The IEB is the interactive advertising bureau. And um, so they are, um, again, uh, uh, a, a company that basically it's a, um organization that has a variety of, you know, I think a couple thousand members. They do uh, banners, they do TV, they do streaming. Anytime you're getting served advertising digitally uh, is uh, the IBs uh, got their hands in the, um, in the guidelines and buyer's guide and that kind of stuff. All right. Let's see here. Wall Street Journal had a good article on podcasters make their sales pitch to advertisers on the um, upfront. So, um, and really what an upfront is, is you bring your talent in and you say, I'm so-and-so with so-and-so company. I've got uh, four hosts here from different shows and they, they pitch their shows and talk about what they're doing and, little presentation to the media buyers as a way to um, basically shop uh, their shop and their shows for advertising. And they, they, you know, television programmers do these. Uh, so this is, um, um, you know, where you trot out your talent, essentially. Um, Ira Glass was there. Mark Maron, uh, Marin was there. Katie Couric was there. Shaquille O'Neal. So, you know, this was, you know, headliner folks. Um, that were at the event. Let's see here. I was looking to see what um, the folks. I, I this is a non um, non podcast related topic, but I wanted to talk a little bit about it uh, today as well. Do you answer your phone every time? Uh, Daniel, or do you let it go to voicemail if you don't know the number? Even if I know the number, um, 
it's very rare that I answer the phone because to me, it's an interruption. And that's what voicemail is for is so that I don't have to be interrupted. And, and my family and extremely close friends know a secret way to make me answer the <laughs> phone if there's an, an emergency. But besides that, it goes to voicemail most of the time. You need to read this article then. It's uh, from Peter Shankman. It says, take the damn call. And, uh, Here's, here's his title of the article. You're not important enough to let an unknown number go to voicemail. And uh, if you read it, you'll understand his point of view. And I will agree. Um, I'm, if at all possible, I answer the phone. Sometimes I can't. But even if I don't answer the phone and they don't leave a voicemail, I still call the number that called me back. Um, you, you would be amazed the number of reporters that I have called back, the number of people that wanted to talk to a live body about business that I've called back that didn't leave a message, answered the phone and uh, got the BBC on the line. It's you just never know who's calling. And what I have seen in recent uh, um, recent years is that um, people don't like leaving voicemails anymore. They'll, they'll call and they'll just click. They'll hang up. Now, sure. sure, I do get a few calls that are, you know, a salesman, and I can get rid of them pretty quick. I do get a few calls from uh, uh, podcasters that maybe have called support. But I, if I had enough time to answer the phone, I had enough time to try to help them a little bit um, or point them in the right direction. Um, so... Um, I'm a firm believer in what this, uh, this article, I, I actually sent this article to my entire team and I said, everyone, this is required reading. <laughs> so if you're a podcaster, I'm just going to put it out there. You should read this. It gives you a different perspective on, uh, on answering the phone. Now here's a, here's an example. <laughs> um, do you know who, uh, who a is? No. Okay. They are, uh, Huge, H-U-A-W-E-I is the name of the company. They're a huge electronics company. They're Well, they didn't start off as huge, but they were growing and they needed a media relations firm. The CEO um, um, emailed nine firms. Um, nine firms didn't call him back. Um, or actually, he called nine firms and left a message, not, uh, or 10 firms and, and left a message, and nine of them didn't call back. The one company that did call him back is their current uh, media relations firm, and they spent over a half million dollars with them already uh, in consulting work. <laughs> so just because people didn't call people back or didn't answer the phone. So as a podcaster, um, and, and this is where I really learned this, is um, I had a um, three or four years ago um, phone rang. I ignored it because I didn't know what the number was. I was, I was irritated. Um, and then a couple weeks later, um, as an event, and a reporter comes and says, I tried to call you like uh, two weeks ago, such and such, and you didn't uh, answer your phone. And I was trying to get a story for such and such. And I'm like, well, what was your story about? And he said, well, remember that New York Times article? I was like, oh. 
<laughs> so because I didn't answer the phone, I didn't get five minutes with him to maybe get a quote in New York Times. So, well, you know that inspired me. So I went into. <laughs> um, uh, my Google voice settings and I changed something around and this could be a tip for other podcasters. Yeah. Don't give out your personal phone number, but set up like a Google voice or something else that can forward to your personal phone. Yeah. And then a setting I changed inside my Google voice setting is you can say when it forwards to your personal phone, what phone number is it coming from? Uh -huh. What phone number will it pass through? Will it pass through your Google voice number or will it pass through the caller's number? My thinking here is I switched it to pass through the Google voice number so that I can look at my phone and see, oh, this is someone calling on my business line. And right. I can know that immediately yeah. just by looking at the phone number. So that way I'll know, is this a an unknown caller calling my personal line or is this someone calling my business line? So it, it will help me to sometimes more. Sometimes we can't answer the phone. You know, I'm on a call. I can't answer the phone. But, you know, and because people don't leave voice, and people are shocked. I said, hey, this uh, um, this is Todd Cochran from Raw Voice Blueberry. I was on the phone. I saw you called but didn't leave a message. I can't believe you called me back. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay, what, what can I do for you? And then if it ends up being a salesman, I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I don't need it. I don't need to buy your products or services. Thank you. Click. <laughs> but if it's, you know, and you just, so, um, and, you know, and if you're in a meeting, you can't. Sometimes you just can't. Mm -hmm. um, but it might give you an idea on how to change your you know, your voicemail, too. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you. I don't really answer the phone. I couldn't pick it up. You know, you're important to me. You know, reassure people. Give them. You know, and I know you don't like leaving a voicemail, but please do. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll, I'll call you back no matter what. And people get weirded out when you get that kind of a voicemail message. So, all right. Um, bada bing, bada boom here. Um, there was a, another article on Adweek. And maybe this is in relation to some of the things you were just saying here um, about the, the IB said, but their article says why the con conversational power of podcasters, the future of advertising Medium simplicity drives engagement. And this is by a guy by the name of Jason Hawk. And I don't know Jason at all. But uh, he kind of goes back into talking about stuff that happened up front. And um, how listeners are smart. Um, you know, what we're, what do we do today with our DVRs? There's almost like uh, uh, many times we're, as, a, as a family, we're watching a series uh, together. We're talking about it. Um, so, you know, I share interesting shows with my family members, friends, people that I know, interesting episodes, and we, you know, we talk about it. So today, I think this guy is uh, dead on target when he says today's listeners are smarter than ever. Mm -hmm. um, it's no coincidence that the rise of ad blocking is contemporary with the rise of podcasting. The savvy modern consumer demands quality and authenticity. <laughs> There's that word again. I can't say podcasting has thrived under the pressure to uh, offer that is skewing the safety of over editing or misdirection through transients or smoke and mirrors. In other words, BS, that's what he's, he really could have, you know, said that without saying the other stuff. The best conversations depend on a mutual respect of the other party's intelligence. Ooh, good quote, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. The best conversations depend on a mutual respect of the other party's intelligence. Do you think your audience is smart? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah and we, we talk about that with, uh, we do a TV show fan podcast, once podcast com about the TV show Once Upon a Time. And mm-hmm. already that TV show, it's made by some of the same people who did Lost. So it has a b- bit more of an intelligence to it. And with our podcast, that's something we often say is we say, we know you're smart. So you don't need to be reminded of the stuff the yeah. show is trying to remind you about. But we know you know that. Or, or the theories they present and the feedback that they give shows their smartness. Yeah. And we don't. Yeah, okay. So the news today. Okay, just go watch the news. Pick any channel. I don't care. NBC, CBS, Fox, I don't care. Watch one program and think about the context and how they're talking to you. Think about, like, put yourself in a context that, are they talking to me as if I'm stupid? Are they talking to me as if I'm smart? And I think, the majority of the time, the way news is done today, they talk to us like we're a bunch of blubbering idiots. I really think they don't, you know, they're there to entertain and and maybe to train a low information person. But I really think TV sometimes, especially news, talks down to us and it keeps hitting points again and again. And I'm like, please stop. I, I, I know. I know. You don't have to say that 25 times. Maybe that's because they know all of the smart viewers are now listening to podcasts <laughs> and not watching TV. <laughs> Touche. Yes. Yes, I maybe you're exactly right. Touche. <laughs> um so Wow, good. I think I've got our guest for Podcast Legends. You just text me on Facebook. Podcasts respect consumers' intelligence and work hard to gain that respect from them, especially if they expect to be listening for the long haul. Man, I tell you, that paragraph there needs to go in a slide deck. <laughs> it was good. That, you know, I, I think we need to, you know, we don't actively remind ourselves of that stuff. I, I have a little short list um, here uh, in the studio that I read to myself before I do every show uh, to remind myself of the core values of my show and remind me, make sure I, and it's just something I go through every time. Um, It's just kind of a reminder. Hey, it's like, hey, knucklehead, you know, respect their time. Uh, uh, You know, it's all these little things that uh, in what it it was derived from, uh, listener feedback. A listener said, you really piss me off when you do this. Oh, now write that down. You know, don't do this because I was pissing people off. So, you know, we've all gotten those emails from a listener and, you know, and if one person says it, 10 others are thinking of it or a hundred or whatever the percentage may be. Um, but the 2016 podcasting upfront was held this week, and from the buzz it generated, it seems that brands and advertisers are now rightfully setting their sights on the medium. Of course, their eyes follow or ears of the millions of consumers already joined a podcast conversation, which is the vanguard of media and advertising journey to the promised land. Uh, so I wished. 
uh, we need more advertisers. Podcasts sit comfortably at the nexus of authenticity. Storytelling and conversation and combination has been promised for years in all other forms of media. Delivery's promise has been questionable at best. Well, we I think we've been doing storytelling within podcasting very, very well since day one. Um, so, uh, you know, if finally a couple of good articles, <laughs> you know, so many of these podcasting articles, you just read them and you're like, ah. <sighs> um, how stuff works surpassed 650 podcast downloads ahead of the two six, 2016 IAB podcast upfront. That's amazing. $250 million between August 2015 and July 2016. I wonder who's measuring their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it's one of these IAB partners. Yeah. Um, so there was some news from Overcast you turned me on to. What's going on over there? Yeah, Overcast is uh, probably the number one non-Apple podcast app on iOS. And uh, it's made by Marco Arment. And he just yesterday, at the time of this recording, released a new update that changes his monetization model. Though, here's the history of Overcast, and he covers this in a blog post on his site, too, at marco.org from uh, September 9th. He says, uh, in the first year, there were two versions of Overcast. There was a free version and then a paid version, which was $4.99. And uh, the paid version had more features, like it had... Um, voice boost, which would help smooth out the volume levels in the podcast. It had um, a couple other features. I can't remember what they were. And he said that brought in good money up front. Uh, the second year, he tried monetizing through patronage because with any app that you sell, there's that big spike up front of income. But then afterward, it drops down as people have bought the app, you reach market saturation, income ongoing income starts to decline and uh, for him he was seeing that decline and so in the second year he tried patronage which came out to a dollar per month and he made overcast with most of its features then free but then patronage initially you didn't get anything but eventually it started to add new features like a dark theme the ability to upload any episodes from anywhere into overcast and uh, so this year, what he just did with this latest update is he has made, um, he's changed the model a bit. He still offers patronage, but now it's just $9.99 per year. That's your only option. And uh, you get what he's calling overcast premium. So it includes that upload feature. But then what he's also doing is for the free version it will now have ads, and he calls them simple ads on some screens. I don't quite know what he means by that, but I would guess probably not like a, a, a Google AdSense kind of thing. Um, but he does say that uh, existing patrons and future patrons will not see the ads. And if you bought that original $4.99 version, you won't see the ads either, but you will see an occasional promotion to update for um, the premium features. So, you know, programmers have to survive. Yeah. You know. And his thinking there, uh, and it's really interesting what he points out in this thing, 
in his post, he says that really he he saw that for his business to survive, for his income to survive from Overcast so that he could continue developing it, making it great, um, he needed 5 to 10% of the user base to pay, only a dollar per month. Right. And that would work great for him. And he shows uh, some charts and such that show that it's been kind of leveling off at only about 3%. And at 3%, it's not enough for him to really make the app into what he wants to see it do. So uh, this change he's hoping with displaying basic ads, it will bring in that income or encourage people to pay for Overcast, the premium membership, uh, so that they get it without ads. And then that will enable him to really develop this a lot more into what he wants it to be. You know, I've always said on my own show that if I could get 10% of the audience to contribute at a base level, a base uh, suggested level, that I think we're at, uh, uh, what was it? It's it's like, I don't know, let me look. I should know this off the top of my head. Yeah, I think if I got 10% of my audience to join Podcaster Society, which is my main business thrust right now, Boy, I, that could be my entire business. Yeah, if I, could, if I could get 10% of my audience to come in at five bucks a month, um, I could hire two people um, and do another show or do another, you know, put out another episode a week. So, so uh, it's hey, just... podcast listener, think about supporting your favorite podcast. Yeah, it, uh, it really would make a big difference. And if, and if uh, 20% or 25%, holy smacks. It would be life changing, you know. If you get twenty five percent of your audience to come in at uh, five dollars a month, it would be uh, that'd be just like. Um, I, I, I will admit, I'd be able to take a vacation every year, <laughs> <laughs> and a nice one. Take like ten days off, you know. Not that you're going to use the money that your audience donates for vacation, but you know, be honest with you, my sponsors keep the lights on, you know, feed my family, and you know, pay the insurance. So. Um, it's true. So I understand where he's coming at on that three to five, that five percent level. Um, it's just you know there's there's so many demands for people's monies these days, and you know the economy for a lot of folks hasn't totally recovered. So they're, you know, they're still impacted. Let's. Um, I think last article of the day, and this is uh, I got a request from uh, one of our listeners to talk about this. Uh, podcast company Art19 partners with the New York Times. Since the launch out of beta, Art19 has hit the round running. Secured a partnership with the New York Times. The venerable publishing company will migrate its entire catalog to Art19. The first three, three New York Times shows rolling out to Art19 are the run-up, book review, and the latest show still processing. I haven't listened to any New York Times stuff. I don't largely trust them, but uh, I wonder how they're going to do with these shows. You know, it, yeah, and this is from Rain News, the article yeah, that you're reading. Yeah, Rain News, yeah. There's an interesting quotation in this article. So Art19 is this API system that's, instead of <laughs> using RSS to deliver the podcast, it's using oh, no, something no, else. No, no, don't get me wrong. They still have RSS. They, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. There's no, there's no, uh, they do API for their player. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Well, uh, then that kind of changes my perspective here, but there's a quotation in here that says uh, from Samantha Hennig, 
editorial director of audio for New York Times. She said, our short-term strategy is to go where the listeners are and build big audiences and get our name out there as a creator of great audio content. I was initially thinking, well, Art19 means API, and API means you're not going where your listeners are. Well, that, yeah, right. <laughs> but they do have RSS. Okay. Art19 okay. does have it. That, so th- there's no way they could get into iTunes if they didn't have RSS. You know, so that's the funny part. Yeah, the, yeah, okay. You know, tracking media plays on a player. Come on, that's that's elementary stuff. Um, but uh, you know, they're uh, they're they're trying to. Um, do I smoke mirror? Um, <laughs> they are a new hosting uh, and distribution uh, platform, and they're doing monetization, and they have uh, a lot of venture capital so um you know i I, they're making some headway for sure they're getting some big names um so we'll see what happens but you know you you take what midroll said about uh, programmatic and ad insertion what they said in the article with the folks over at ad exchanger it makes you scratch your of course rob has alluded that uh, they're just experimenting midroll's experimenting with the art 19 so um, it's maybe more there than there is. I don't know. Time will tell. And uh, Kathy, uh, love to have you come on the show. Love to have your perspective on all this stuff. So it, you have an open invite to uh, to come on the podcast, okay? <laughs> uh, do a little shout out there. Um, anything else that you saw this week, Daniel, that is of interest I think that's the the biggest stuff. Um, I think it's cool to see New York Times jumping into podcasting so much because newspaper industry is dying. Everyone's known that for the last decade. So for them to jump into new media might be a new direction for the company. And maybe someday in the future, we'll see New York Times not as a newspaper company, but a content creation company. Well, they do, you know, beside the news, they do a lot of content creation on the written word. You know, you look at their back sections when you're getting out of, you know, they're doing uh, lifestyle and, you know, they have all those sections in the New York Times. So, they, you know, they, they've got a huge body of storytellers. They, how do they, you know, they got to convert that to podcast is, can they do that in an effective way? That... Um, that is the, you know, that's the question. But it's interesting. You've got all these content companies that are springing up on the East Coast. And you look at uh, Nick Qua, and he, he actually, for the very first time, I think, talked about a West Coast company recently. But, uh, yeah, a lot of, and, and that's the thing right now. Everyone's looking to build content. Content, 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 and leverage their current audiences to build bigger audiences. I just wonder if, you know, it, that's hard. It's really hard to build content. Um, so it'll be interesting to sample some of these shows to see how they are. I'm sure they're highly produced. Um, you're getting, you're you having your show edited now, right? Or you have for a while. Yeah. I, well, I've, I've always edited my show to some extent. Um, what I would edit for would be the catastrophic mistakes. Mm. Uh, if I just completely forgot what I was saying, I stumbled horribly over a word, that kind of thing. I would edit out. Now, uh, I do have an editor 
so that I, I work really hard on preparing for my episodes. But when I finish, I want to then work on the next thing. Mm. And so I pass on the editing to someone else. They give me the MP3. I tag it, upload it, post it to my show notes and move on. Yeah, I'm because mine such stuff is so time sensitive. Uh, I don't have the luxury of having an editor. Maybe on this show I would, but it's, it's going to be what it is, what it is. We're just cut and paste. <laughs> so and one of the other cool things ahead. that's going on in the podcasting space, uh, we talked about this a little bit uh, before the show, the rise of new conferences yeah. for podcasters oh, yeah. again. Um, it reminds me of the old pod, pod camp days mm-hmm. um, where the pod camp was anyone could speak and it was originally about podcasting, but it slowly merged with social media, turned into more social media conferences. Uh, I remember even being invited to speak at a pod camp conference where they said, please help. No one here is speaking about <laughs> podcasting at a pod camp. Um, but then now many of those conferences have evolved into social media events, right? Uh, Knoxville, Indiana, many other places. But now I think we're seeing the rise of these one-day single-track podcast events like Podcast Mid-Atlantic. That's where uh, Rob Greenlee is right now. And there's uh, Podcast Florida turning into PodFest and yep. um, things in L.A. and Chicago and um, many places across the nation. And it's neat to see these little places rising up with their own little podcast conferences. And it's kind of, this is the reemergence in podcasting, not podcasting itself. But I think the community feel is reemerging. I hope so. Right? You know, it's, uh, that's what made this space great uh, in the beginning. And this is some of the stuff I'm trying to capture in this, you know, this new series I'm doing, Podcast Legends, which I interviewed uh, Gary Leland uh, last week. This week, it's going to be Don and Drew. I just got the confirmation that Don and Drew is going to be on the show. We're going to uh, interview them uh, late tomorrow afternoon. But uh, the, a lot of these podcasters hard to get scheduled. I haven't had to schedule guests before, so this is a new thing for me. It sucks. <laughs> if I was going to hire an assistant, it would be purely for scheduling guests. Um, that's the only thing I don't... Uh, care to do is you know the back and forth to get people scheduled so um something new for me for because rob has taken care of everything here um over the years and now i can understand his frustration a little more but yeah the the event uh podcast mid-atlantic i think is a two-day event yeah or maybe even three i don't i have to check the calendar but um the podfest event down in florida that's i think that's going to be the compliment uh complimentary uh, event to podcast movement. Uh, yeah, I, I got to talk to uh, Chris Kremitzos, one of the organizers, and he's also the guy that's leading the um, the Messengers documentary, which, by the mm. way, has exceeded its bare minimum funding on Indiegogo. This is a great podcast documentary. Uh, they are at, I want to see, 104% of oh, nice. their goal. So that's great. And they've got three days left um, at this time. But uh, yeah, what uh, Chris really sees PodFest US in Florida being is to really focus on the independent podcaster. Mm. Um, whereas Podcast Movement, I think, is trying to appeal to all podcasters, especially the the more professional level. Right. Um, but then these smaller events are connecting those independents with each other. I think the... Uh Let's be honest, every small show wants to grow up to be a big show. 
So uh, there's and interesting that they're looking at just focusing on the independent content creators. We're all the high majority of podcasters are independent. You know, that's the yeah. There's five percent that's the you know the Panapolis and the Gimlets and the Wonderies of the world in New York Times, um, but the majority of us are the you know guys like you and I. They have little studios that do shows. So I still consider myself an independent podcaster. I don't know, maybe, maybe I've gotten. I don't think I've gotten mainstream. So okay, Daniel, where can I find you? I'm over at the audacity to podcast.com as well as on Twitter at the Daniel J. Lewis. And of course you can find me uh, at geek news on Twitter. If you want to email the show, it's Todd at newmediashow.com. Rob's not here. So it's Rob at Rob Of course, Rob can be found at Rob Greenly. And um, if you have comments on the show, we'd love to hear from you uh, on uh, how we're doing. Suggest guests. Do you want to come on? Do you want to give us your, two cents worth uh we really want to encourage uh, participation anyone that wants to participate that has a message you want to share and get in there and uh whether it be a swing fist or make uh light comments or uh, knock us down a peg or two i'm hey we're open to your uh guidance and suggestions and uh, love to have you on the show but uh differing opinions is always good Uh, even if you want to come on and play devil's advocate i i like those types of conversations so um i hope you enjoyed today's show i'll have in the show notes links to the iv podcast ad measurement guidelines that's out um and some of these articles that we've linked to as well because i think some of the stuff is very very important and when your phone rings answer it everyone take care my name is todd cochran and thanks daniel for being on with me today on the new media show you're welcome